So the difference between people pleasing and, you know, like 101, people pleasing and approval seeking 101. So all people pleasers are approval seekers, but not all approval seekers are people pleasers. So what that means is a people pleaser is someone who, in a nutshell, likes to say yes when they really want to say no. Uh, they they can be like, you know, the brown nosers or the, the people who just typically bend over backwards for other people. They do, they put everybody else before them. Approval seekers might do all of that or they might not, but they still really, really care what other people think. So they're doing things to get the approval of other people. Sometimes that's saying yes when they want to say no, but not always. And yeah, like that's hard, right? I remember when I first started blogging in 2008-ish, 2009, I was really caught up in that. And I remember like the first couple of comments that I got where people were criticizing something, whether it was my ideas or my voice or whatever. I was just so hurt from that and took it personally and would ask my blogging friends, like, how do you just, how do you not care? Like, how do you keep, keep going? How do you keep blogging when, when you get the haters? That was Andrea Owen, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 117. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Can I take a quick minute to say some mushy thank you stuff? Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose life experiences and opinions might be different from your own. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people to find us. So thank you so much for taking a second and doing that. And thank you, of course, for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before. I have such a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I want to just take a second to explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple and powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plans for anything. So if that's what you're looking for, sorry, I don't have all of the capital A answers. Um, As a recovering self-help junkie, I'm actually pretty over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too, and that that's why you're here. So yeah, that's not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. 
And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for new real talk live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Andrea Owen. Andrea is an author, mentor, and certified life coach who helps high achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation, and choose courage and confidence instead. She's the author of 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, and her new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, is out now. In this episode, Andrea tells the story of her own rock bottom and how that led her to work in the coaching field. Trained in the modalities of Dr. Brene Brown, Andrea talks openly about shame, jealousy, and managing her inner critic. She explains the difference between people-pleasing and approval-seeking, and between numbing out and self-care, and she shares stories from her own life about sobriety, parenting, work, and so much more. As you know, if you've listened to this show before, I'm definitely a recovering self-help junkie, and one of the things that I love about Andrea's approach to personal development is that she isn't a quick-fix coach. She's real and honest and committed to the truth that change is hard and that it takes time. I so loved having this conversation with her, and I hope that you enjoy it too. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Andrea, welcome to the show. Nicole, I've done a lot of interviews, and this one I have been really looking forward to. Like, no shit. So excited to talk to you. (laughs) I always feel that way about talking to you. And I was looking at my schedule this week, and it's a particularly busy week with recording and with everything. And um, I was had that extra little burst of when I woke up this morning excitement of, oh, I get to talk to her today. So feeling is mutual. Um, Okay, here's something that I didn't know until I started looking into um, (laughs) some more like in-depth stuff for this interview. Um, I didn't know that you used to play roller derby. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. And I'm thinking about coming out of retirement and going back. So that's happening. And every time I say it out loud, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm one step closer. That's, that's amazing. I don't know anything about roller derby other than it looks really badass. So (laughs) you have to go watch it in person. How did you get started with it? Like, how did that come into your life? Cause you do triathlons, right? I, I haven't actually done a try. I need to update my bio. God help me. Um, <laughs> I haven't done a try in a couple years. Um, but how roller derby came about is that so roller derby for people listening that don't know it had sort of like a reemergence uh, in the early two thousands, mid to early two thousands in Texas, and it came back. And it's not like the campy nineteen seventies our mom's, you know, generation of roller derby. It's definitely an athletic sport. And, and I, I sort of like watched the, the reemergence of it. And then at the time I was living in San Diego and I went, they're called bouts, you know, a roller derby game is called a bout. And so I went to a bout with a few of my girlfriends and I was like, 
this is the raddest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like <laughs> these are my people, but I hadn't been on skates. I mean, I roller skated as a child and then of course rollerblades in the nineties with our fanny packs and things like that. But it had been a minute since I'd been on skates. And then I just kept like thinking about it and obsessing on it and watching YouTube videos. And then we moved to the state of Utah and I went to about out there with my husband and I went up to the, to the women and I, uh, when we bought tickets and I was like, hi, can you tell me about tryouts? And I was terrified to talk to them and they were so nice. I thought they would laugh at me. You know? <laughs> They're like, whatever mom. And, um, and I went and I tried out and, and I, they teach you, you know, and, and depends on what league you try out in. And I was terrible and it hurt a lot. And then I just got better. And then I, and then I hurt my shoulder really bad. And then that's when I, when I quit. So I haven't been back in about four or five years, but I'm thinking about going back. Now I live in North Carolina and there's the Greensboro roller derby out here. So we'll see. We'll see. What do you miss the most about it? I miss being a part of something like that. The culture is, it's similar from what I understand, it's similar to CrossFit, which I've never done CrossFit before, but it's like that very, you know, deep entrenched sort of enmeshed (laughs) culture. That's what I miss that. And and it's league run. So it's, you're, you're there a lot and you just, Derby also embraces anyone. If you identify as female, you can come. I mean, if you can, if you're willing to learn how to do everything, like they'll teach you, if you can skate, you can play derby. And I just, I miss just the wide variety of, of women that, that play. And it's just, yeah, I think at the bottom, I just miss being a part of something like that. Yeah. I I've been thinking about this a lot this year. I mean, not in the context of roller derby, but I really understand the sort of desire to belong to something or to be part of something. I think especially, you know, working from home alone, spending so much time Mm -hmm. alone. And I don't really have a problem with that. I'm, you know, mostly an an only child. And so it's like, (laughs) I'm fine spending time alone, but I think I forgot over the past couple of years, how wonderful it is to be in a supportive environment, to be pursuing sort of like goals alongside other people, to even have a common goal. And one of the things I'm working on a lot this year is, okay, how can I, those communities and things aren't just going to create themselves. So, you know, it's whether it's with writing or, you know, other sort of podcast colleagues or just like it, it gets really hard and lonely to do things completely in a vacuum. And so I've been thinking about that too. Okay. How can, yeah. what can I join that already exists? I don't have to start, you know, something necessarily. Exactly. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. I think too, the one more thing about Derby that I want to mention is that it's, it's an aggressive sport. You know, it's not like the chess team. So I also identify as being a little bit of an angry person. I, <laughs> And it's a way to get that out and just, I mean, and you have to, that Derby helped me overcome a lot of fear, not just out on the track, but just in life. I actually wrote, um, I have a podcast episode, like the six things that Derby has taught me about life, just about fear and just getting out there and just like putting yourself out there and, and being afraid, but doing it anyway. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, I feel like everything that I learned from life, I learned from running. So like I get out a new sport or a new activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So speaking of your podcast, you've done how many episodes now? I have, as we're recording this, I have 199. Okay. Oh man. Um, (laughs) What's something that a podcast guest of yours has said, I don't know, recently, maybe the last six months that's really stuck with you? Well, no, I think it's not a specific thing, but I think it's a theme that, that I, the way I can answer this. So I do, I do, I have a regular podcast, you know, it's like self-help and all that stuff. And then I do a series and you, you were on my recovery series mm-hmm. and where I've done it twice where I've done 10 total, 20 total episodes on recovery. I'm someone who's in long-term recovery. I've been sober for six years. And I think that 
what's really interesting, and I've, I've interviewed people, you know, it's all women who have stories of where they have hit a bottom where you're like, yeah, that was, you were a hot mess. And then other women who didn't, who had really high bottoms. And I think that either way, what's, what never fails to kind of amaze me is the progression, is the progression of, you know, we didn't just wake up one day and have our life be completely fallen apart. It was the slow progression that was sort of chipping away at us. And for the common theme is that the symptom was alcohol. And I think that, um, it just, I, that's what the message hits home for the people listening too. you know, someone might be listening and be like, well, I'm not that bad. You know, I still have everything intact. Well, if you keep on this path, it's likely that it's that it's going yeah. to be that bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think I thought about that a lot after, you know, we talked for that series, because I'm definitely someone who didn't have, you know, an acute what like outward rock bottom. And that was always for me sort of reason to not quit drinking because I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's not that bad or whatever. But if it would have keep, kept happening, it probably would have gotten that bad. But even if it wouldn't, things don't have to be atrocious in order for you to make a change. Exactly. They call it, there's like in, in the quote unquote rooms of AA, there's like a, there's a metaphors and things for everything. And one of them is the elevator that like the elevator only goes one direction and that's down, but you can get off at any floor you want. And that really stuck with me. And I was like, okay, so I can just, you know, get off at one of these top floors. I don't have to go all the way down to the basement. Mm -hmm. That's where I was headed for sure. Yeah. 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 I hear that. Um, yeah. I, and we can totally talk about sobriety or anything else later. I feel like you're one of those people that there's a thousand different things that I want to talk to you about or that we could talk Mm -hmm. about. So it's kind of like, okay, deep breath. You only have a short amount of time. Um, (laughs) but I would love to start. I've heard you describe your role as a coach, as someone who helps women who deep down don't feel good enough. Can you share a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah. And I think that I, ref- I say deep down, it's because the women that I work with, you would not think that they had anything really going quote unquote wrong or that they felt terrible. I work with women who have pretty much kicked ass in their career. I don't work with a whole lot of entrepreneurs, but I do a little bit, but mostly they're corporate women who have climbed the corporate ladder in some industry or another. And um, some of them are married, some of them are not, some of them have children, some of them are not. But the common thread is that they are high achievers, bordering on, you know, overachieving. They struggle a lot with control. They um, they are perfectionists. Some of them are people pleasers, not all of them, but they definitely struggle around approval seeking and um, definitely wear an identity of being the strong one and And just they've created this persona of themselves where everyone thinks that they have it all together and that they're not struggling. They tend to numb out, they tend to isolate, and they get to a point in their life where they're just exhausted and tired and like looking around like what what is going on? And they just um their relationships aren't great either. Whether, you know, they're if they're dating, they're picking the wrong partners or they're Um, Their female friendships tend to not be that strong and they just aren't living their life in accordance to their values. And many of them don't even know what their values are. They don't know what's important about the way that that they want to live their life or they would probably be doing it. So that's typically who I help. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me the story of how you got into this work at the very beginning? Yes. So my life was going swimmingly, she says sarcastically. (laughs) (laughs) I was married before. So the marriage I'm in now is my second husband. So I was, I was with someone from the time I was 17 years old until I was 31. And we had been together for about 10 years and we got married. And a couple of years into our marriage, as we were talking about and planning out conceiving our first child, um, you know, trying to get pregnant with our first child, he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. 
And it wasn't, yeah, it was brutal. And it wasn't like, um, oh, I'm so sorry. This was a huge mistake. You know, Andrea, can we try to work it out? Which I probably, honestly, Nicole, like I probably would have forgiven him and tried to work it out if he had said that to me. But he was in love with this woman and she was gorgeous and a little bit younger than I was. And it sent a ripple through his entire family. And so my parents had also gotten divorced when I was 18. And so I just was sort of like folded into this family and it was a large family. He had four brothers and, um, you know, most of them were married. And I mean, the wives were my sisters. His parents were like my parents. And it was devastating. Losing that family was actually harder for me than losing him. Um, cause we didn't have the best relationship, obviously. <laughs> so, um, when we split up, like really, as soon as we split up, I did what <laughs> was probably not my best move, but I started dating. I got myself a match.com profile and, I started dating and actually met a couple of nice and normal guys and I wanted nothing to do with them. I chewed them up and spit them out pretty quickly. And then I met this guy who was tall, dark and handsome and funny and charming. And, um, on the first date, my intuition was kind of like, "Mm, something doesn't feel quite right. It almost was like a too good to be true. And I didn't listen and I slept with him on the first date instead. He was the first guy I'd ever slept with on the first date. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, second date, he told me he had cancer. And so he was sick for the majority of our relationship and it was awful. And he was sick and then he would get better and he was sick and then he would get better. And, and our relationship kind of got, got, our world got smaller and smaller. I had isolated myself for most of my friends. It was a dysfunctional relationship for so many reasons. And he ended up quitting his job and he had estranged himself from most of his friends and family. And I started to get suspicious a few months in, um, he was, we're living in San Diego at the time and you know, you can go to Tijuana, Mexico to pretty much get anything you want there. And we were going down there to get his cancer medication and I, it was all kind of fishy. And then I started to suspect, like, I don't know if we're actually getting cancer medication. It kind of seems like we're getting something else. And he was very vague about what it was. And I thought, I wonder if he's addicted to pills because of his cancer So trying to make a long story short, I ended up finding out that he was actually addicted to painkillers and um, I confronted him about it. He said, yes, you know, it was because he was so sick and he said he would get clean and he did and he got clean and then we were kind of on an upswing and then I got pregnant and um, then he started using again shortly thereafter and I called his family whom I didn't even know. And I was like, I think that he's using drugs. And I think it's because he's of his cancer. And I was driving in the car and I was on the phone with his aunt and I was telling her this basically like, help me. Cause I don't, I can't help him anymore. And she said to me, Oh honey, he doesn't have cancer. And you're not the first girl that he's lied to about this. Oh my God. So basically, yeah, I had been conned. Um, he had not only lied about having cancer, but just lied about basically everything. And I was pregnant with his child and um, still not even divorced from my husband, <laughs> which like he and I were like still fighting throughout that whole relationship. It was just a mess, Nicole. It was a mess. So she, then she's like, can you help me get him up here to Northern California for this intervention? So I did that and we had this intervention and he went away to rehab and I kind of thought we could fix things. You know, I was hopeful, you know, here I am pregnant. I was hopeful that he would get sober. He apologized for everything. 
Um, and then he met someone in rehab because I was out of money. I was broke. He met someone in rehab who had a trust fund and ended up falling in love with her and we broke up. So that happened. And then I decided I needed to change my life. And so not long after that, I know, right? It's an intense story. Yeah, It was so tough. Here's, here's a PS on that story. Literally just this weekend, I met up um, for dinner with a friend of mine who had been, she was my best friend during that whole saga. And she and I kind of broke up because her mom actually had cancer, like real cancer when I was going through all of that. So it was so much drama. She ended up having to break up with me because I was just too much to handle. And then we um, didn't talk for like a decade. And so we reconnected just this weekend and we were having dinner and we were crying about everything and just really just making amends to each other. And she told me, she goes, Andrea, when you told me that you were signing up for life coaching school, I just about threw up in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I don't blame you, but it was, it was one of the, it was the best thing that ever happened to me um, but at the same time, it really forced me to look at my life and not trying to change everyone else because I, that's what I had done my entire life is I had put all of my happiness on everyone else's shoulders. And I thought that that was everyone else's job. So I finally took responsibility for, for me and learned how to take care of myself emotionally. I didn't know how to do that before. I, I, I honestly did not know how. I would read self-help books and write my friends' names in the margins. I'd be like, oh yeah, Shelby needs to take care of this. And this is so, this is so Anna, you know, and um, it really, that whole ordeal, all of that happened within the course of 18 months. And it was everything that I needed to change my life. I'm so grateful that it happened. Mm-hmm. So then how did you even, like, had you heard of life coaching before? Like, what was it that you were like, this is going to be the thing? I had heard about life coaching when I was married to my first husband before he had an affair. So I remember sitting at the computer and reading about it. It was in our bedroom and, and I, it was probably like 2002, 2003. And I said to him, I'm like, this, this seems like the raddest profession. Cause I had actually thought about going and getting my, um, my degree in, um, like family counseling and being an, an um, licensed marriage counselor, family counselor, uh, therapist is the word I'm looking for. And, but I, I wasn't too sure if that was for me. And I, I told him, I'm like, this seems like it would be so up my alley, but I think that a really great life coach would have to have some good like life experience. And I don't have that much life experience. So it was like two years later that all of that fell apart. Care for what you wish for, right? <laughs> right. Be careful what you ask the universe for. And so that happened. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, I think, Life coaching, I mean, at this point, I would assume everyone listening to this is like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that or I've, you know, I know what that is. But um, can you talk maybe a little bit, maybe for someone who doesn't know sort of the, I guess, like key differences between life coaching and therapy and then maybe what your um, like training and certification process Mm -hmm. was? Yeah. So the, the best way I like to describe it is the analogy of someone that, that, that has agoraphobia. So if they are afraid to leave their house. So if you would go see a therapist, if you were someone who struggled with agoraphobia and you needed to know why you were afraid to leave your house, so you would dive into your family of origin, you would talk it out, talk about all your fears, et cetera, et cetera. So once you get through that, then it might be time for you to see a life coach and the life coach would help you with the how and the strategy, holding you accountable, 
championing you, being your cheerleader, that type of thing. So it's a very, you know, kind of rudimentary example, but that's a, that's how I like to describe it. And my training, my first training was with the Coaches Training Institute. That was in, I started in 2007. I took a long break because I had a baby. Um, and also I wasn't ready <laughs> and it took me about a, well, like it took me a year and a half, I think, to go through the entire certification. And then I, that was, I took my test, I think in 2009. And then in 2014, I was also certified in the work of Dr. Brene Brown and, um, a uh, little bit different modalities, you know, each one has its own specificities, but those, those that's my, my training. Mm-hmm. What was it about, um, Brene Brown's work that made you want to be certified in her modalities? I mean, I, I love her of course, and I know a lot of people do too. So <laughs> I'm curious how that came up for you. I started following her in 2009, back when she wrote her first book, which mm-hmm. like hardly anybody's ever read. I thought it was just me. And she had like a read along on her blog. And, you know, she used to like comment, you know, and like respond to everybody's blog comments. It was like, like the original, I feel like I'm like one of the original followers. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, her TED talk in 2010, and just, I resonated so much with like, you know, most people listening, I'm sure, just what she was talking about. And, it's sort of like this high achieving codependency, struggling with vulnerability type of person. And I also loved that it was backed in research and that she was a researcher and, um, and social worker. And it was just, I was just fascinated with her work. And then when she announced that she was rolling out training for coaches, therapists, and social workers, I jumped on it. And so that was in San Antonio in 2014 and that, um, that changed me. I mean, all of my training has changed me both personally and professionally, but that one, I, I feel like it kind of like flipped me upside down and shook all the loose change out of my pocket. No <laughs> pun intended, but yeah, it was, it was five days of intense training. What was, I mean, I'm sure this would take a lot longer, but if you can, in some kind of a nutshell, like what made it so intense or like, what was it that, cause when you say that that really changed your life personally and professionally, was there anything specific about it that made that change happen? Yeah, I think because you're talking about shame and shame is that thing that we all have that nobody really likes to talk about. And I think that it's, it's, it's very specific. Like you want to go seven layers deep, like that's what you need to talk about. And it was interesting in that we were both being trained on how to facilitate the work and doing the work we were doing it at the same time. So I think they actually did it on purpose to see how resilient we were flipping back and forth from, you know, being trained and going through the work ourselves. So it was exhausting from that standpoint. And I think that, um, she actually talks about this in her book, rising strong. She talks about the training and she talks about day two and how day two is so difficult for her trainees because you're sharing shame stories. So what was so difficult was I'll just be really specific. So we're sitting in a group of, I think it was like 10 or 12 of us. And you share with the group some of your shaming stories from your childhood or and or school experiences, you know, family of origin or work experiences or relationship experiences. And it's fucking brutal. You know, it's like, it's hard enough to go through it, but then to like tell the stories out loud for people and then hear other people's stories. I mean, you spent all day doing it. And we were just like, spent at the end of the day. It's just, it's trauma work. And it was just what I ended up coming out. The biggest thing that I came out with, with that, and this wasn't even one of the stories that I shared with my group was that when I was 20, I was, um, 
I was, I was date raped at a, at a party with someone that I knew. And, um, I always thought it was my fault. I always thought it was my fault. And I mm-hmm. always just poo pooed the story. And it was just like, well, I was really drunk and I liked him and we were making out. And I mean, it was definitely non-consensual, but it wasn't violent. It wasn't aggressive or anything. So I, I justified that for 20 years. And at that, at the end of the day at that training, it was just a story that popped into my mind. And I just cried so hard and, Mm -hmm. and that kind of crying, like where you can't breathe. And it was just, I finally admitted like, no, that was not the the fact that I said no, probably 200 times during that entire event mattered. And it was just a pivotal moment, I think for me in, in realizing that when that happened, I felt like my voice didn't matter. When that happened, I felt like I didn't matter. And I, and I, it was just pinpointing and sort of connecting the dots and I was 20 years old. And like, that's like, I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretty much when I started to unravel. And, um, it was just, that was just an example of, of like what can kind of come out of that type of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, oh, I mean, there's so much on the topic of shame. I, something that I've been thinking about, and I know that you've talked about this too, is like, even the word shame, especially now, I mean, through her work is I think more popularly used, right? This topic's more talked about, but I still think that there's like a common misunderstanding. Like when I hear shame, like you think it has to be this like monumental public thing that happened, mm-hmm. like that there's like a specific definition of shame that, it, that um, leaves out a lot of, I don't think I'm being very articulate, but I think you know what I'm saying, that it doesn't- I know like, what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe can you speak to that a little bit since, yeah, since I'm for not sure. making and much I, sense? <laughs> no. And I, I love that you're saying that because I, I wrote about that in my in my book because I felt like exactly what you were saying, that when people hear the word shame, they think of these these stories of um, of just like public shaming and um, and we see it a lot, you know, cyberbullying and, and things like that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. So the way I describe it is we all know what shame feels like. And we all probably have stories from middle school where somebody made fun of our weight or somebody made fun of something about us where you feel just, and there's, and it's kind of nuanced, like it might've been embarrassment mixed with humiliation, mixed with shame. So there's no like hard and fast lines in between the feelings. But I think like as a whole, we as humans understand what that feels like. It's that feeling of feeling like other than, and um, like being rejected, like not being a part of a group and things like that. So that's not really, the problem happens is when we are trying to engineer our life to run away from that. So that's the birth of perfectionism. That's the birth of people pleasing. You know, we're trying to engineer our life to be perceived. We, we want to be perceived a certain way by other people. And so we are letting shame run our lives. And like, that's what I talk about a lot because the women that I work with, they're like, I don't actually walk around feeling ashamed. So I don't really know what that <laughs> is, but that's, that's how I describe it. It's like when you're trying to run away from shame and it's like all those behaviors, it's the perfectionism, it's the overachieving, et cetera. Yeah, it's even potentially, you know, knowing what shame is and how bad it feels, even from, you know, if you haven't had that many experiences with it, I I can see that perfectionism, the people pleasing, all of that as like preventative measures. Like I'll do anything that I can to not feel this way. Mm -hmm. It's this maintenance of preventative measures. I I love that way of describing it. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't feel good because a lot of times, and the thing is, is like, sometimes those behaviors work for us for a while. Like I always say, overachieving and perfectionism is what got me to graduate with honors from college. And same with, um, you know, running my business. But it's like, at what point do you cross the line 
over into that affecting your life negatively. That's what, that's the conversation I like to have with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned something, um, when you were talking about the type of women that you worked with, um, and you said they're not all necessarily people pleasers, but there's all some kind of usually like a validation and outward validation seeking behavior, I think, or you said mm -hmm. something like that, which definitely sparked my interest. Cause I feel like this is a conversation that comes up, um, both with friends and like in the Patreon community, just like privately this idea of like how to overcome people pleasing or how to care less about being liked in general. And I feel yeah. like it's, it's funny. Like, I don't even know that I would describe myself as a people pleaser. I don't even know really what that means, but I do for sure care about being liked. I think everyone does. Sure. But it's like <laughs> when I was like making my 2018 goals, I'm like, okay, care less about being liked. And I'm like, okay, but how do you do that? How? Do you, how? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so if you have any wisdom, I mean, I know yes. that it's a much larger topic, but I know it's something that you've worked through and struggled with also. For sure. Okay. So the difference between people pleasing and, you know, like 101, people pleasing and approval seeking 101. So all people pleasers are approval seekers, but not all approval seekers are people pleasers. So what that means is a people pleaser is someone who in a nutshell likes to say yes, but when they really want to say no, uh, they, they can be like, you know, the brown nosers or the, the people who just typically bend over backwards for other people. They do, they put everybody else before them. Approval seekers might do all of that or they might not, but they still really, really care what other people think. So they're doing things to get the approval of other people. Sometimes that's saying yes, when they want to say no, but not always. And yeah, like that's hard, right? I remember when I first started blogging in 2008-ish, 2009, I was really caught up in that. And I remember like the first couple of comments that I got where people were criticizing something, whether it was my ideas or my voice or whatever, I was just so hurt from that and took it personally and would ask my blogging friends, like, how do you just, how do you not care? Like, how do you keep keep going? How do you keep blogging when, when you get the haters? And they were like, oh, you just have to totally ignore it. You have to just not take it personally at all. And I thought something was wrong with me because I didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, how? <laughs> Nobody had an answer for me. And so it wasn't until years later and I kept asking people where I learned that we still do get hurt from it. I, you know, we, we still do feel that sting of wow, that person was crappy. And that was a crappy comment that that anonymous person left on YouTube or whatever. But we feel the feelings and we have a tribe of people that we can go to and like, you know, talk shit about that person <laughs> for five minutes. And then we move on and it doesn't stay with us. Like we don't base our decisions and our feelings and emotions from that place. That's what the difference is. Like you can still feel the sting and the hurt from it, but you don't let it carry with you. You don't let it sweep you away. So for me, that's what the lesson has been. You know, we're all human. We, we just don't make it a, just the, the win is not making it a habit of letting that stay with you and, and have it, you know, don't base your core beliefs about yourself on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate the sort of breakdown of people pleasing versus approval seeking, because even as you were saying that, I'm like, no, I'm definitely not a people pleaser. <laughs> like my gut instinct is to say no to everything, but I definitely am an approval seeker. So like hearing that even like defined out that way is helpful. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's so many of these things. Ugh, I 
am a for sure like self-described like self-help junkie or addict or like recovering so at this point and like so much of it I get upset with myself when I like want there to be a quick fix right where I'm like just like tell me how to overcome this yeah where's (laughs) the book (laughs) of course it's not and I mean I think that's a common theme for everyone who's listening to this it's actually something that I like a lot about your work is that you're explicitly not a quick fix person and so it's like being able to talk about the nuances of this type of stuff that it's not like well I just did this one thing and now a mean comment never hurts my feelings right that it's it's going to hurt your feelings because you have feelings, Mm -hmm. but it's the ability to not let that sort of derail you. And I think, I mean, unfortunately I feel like it's just sort of exposure. It's like continuing to do it. And I don't know, like I, I got my first one star rating on iTunes for the podcast pretty recently at the time of this recording. And Mm. there wasn't a review attached to it. It was just one star. And I was like, okay, someone like hates the show enough that they went to say so. Okay. Like, it's not my favorite, but I'm going to keep doing it. And I had even that moment of like, well, if you're upsetting someone, that means you're doing something right. And like, that is the thought that maybe I wouldn't have had like four years ago. Right. Yeah. And again, yeah, it's just about, it's, it's just, I like that you said that, that it's just exposure of just of realizing that like you, you're going to be okay. Maybe not tonight. I think that's a, a, a lyric from Florence and the Machine. Um, everything's, um, yeah, I'm going to be cool and I'm going to be fine, but maybe not tonight. Like, yeah, just, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, something else that I really like about you too is that I think, I mean, and <laughs> I don't want to be like cynical about the coaching industry because I know that there's so many people okay. like I you am a lot. whose work that I love, but it's like, I think so much of why people that have expressed to me privately and publicly of being sort of weary and wary of self-help has to do with a lack of awareness around this. Like, I love that you, you don't come at any of this from a perspective of like, I fixed all my things, like, and now everything's perfect. So let me tell you how to also do that. Like you very clearly are still like these things, there's always another layer, right? Like, even if you think you conquered the thing, then it's like, it comes back and it comes back. And I don't know, I really respect that you're open about that. Thank you. Yeah, I don't trust the people who act like that. Um, <laughs> I don't because I know that they still have stuff. I don't. I stopped putting people on pedestals a few years ago when I realized that this work is constant. And and yeah, I think that that's what my listeners appreciate from me is that I tell them about my own stuff that I'm going through. Like if, if, um, you know, when my dad died, like I would, I was talking like, uh, they went through my grief with me. <laughs> I, t- I did take some time off cause it was, it was, you know, it was really hard there for a little bit, but yeah, I just am always really candid and honest and open with people. So obviously I know we all have lots of stuff and different things trigger different stuff, but do you find that there's one or two issues that for you come up more frequently than others? You're like, Oh, this again. Okay. I guess I'm still dealing with this thing. Yeah, you know what it, it's been, and, and you know, if you asked me this six months ago, I might have given you a different answer. But it's upper limit stuff. I feel like, especially with when my second book came out, I knew it was coming. That that's so. When my first book came out in twenty was it twenty thirteen, it was you know that that's even if it was it was only like a slight catapult in the spotlight. Like I'm not famous by any means, but it's still it was it was exposure, and it scared the shit out of me. And I kind of hid out for a good four months after my book came out just because I was just so terrified of everything. I didn't go on a book tour. I didn't do anything. But with this one, when it, even before it came out, I knew it was coming and sort of like, you know, just, I see you fear. I see you coming and I'm going to make, I'm going to take the steps to, to look at it and, and try to dismantle it with the tools that I have. And and definitely, um, and it's this is something that I didn't think that I struggled with before was imposter complex. I always, 
I don't have a problem embracing my accomplishments. I know that I have worked my ass off for where I have come. You know, I've been doing this for a decade now. I'm, I'm not, I don't have any weirdness around talking about that and admitting it. But when it comes to the next level, when it comes to the next thing, that's where I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, like I, I really want to write a memoir. And I was telling one of my friends, but I'm not a memoirist. You know, I don't think I can do it. That You know, I, I read Cheryl Strayed and Elizabeth Gilbert. Like now they are memoirists. Like I, I don't, I write self-help. It's totally easy. Like I'm saying this to one of my friends and she was like, do you realize what you're saying? So it's, it's like these little tiny things that we, maybe not outwardly is imposter complex or perfectionism, but it's like, you need to look at the things, you know, listen to the things that are coming out of your mouth. So that seems to be coming up for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I had an experience this morning. It is always funny, the things that you like think that you have conquered, right. Or that you Mm -hmm. thought weren't an issue for you. And then you're like, Oh man, like seriously. Yeah. (laughs) I, I was, I had this, this moment this morning where I was scrolling through Instagram and, um, like I saw something that, made me feel unbelievably jealous. I mean, like the kind of full body jealousy where you want to like throw your phone across the room and burn everything down and you hate it. And I haven't felt that way in literally years. And I was like, what is this? And then of course the inner talk is, how is that? How are you still getting like hooked in by things? Like, you know, that Instagram is just blah, 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 blah. And so then Mm -hmm. not only are you You feeling- You should know better, inner critic. Like, (laughs) haven't you already like done the self work? And like, I go to therapy and I've worked with coaches and like, haven't you moved beyond this like petty jealousy? And it was just like watching this whole thing unfold. It was almost hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're human, right? Like, okay. So total truth time. I have, I share a literary agent with the wonderful Gabrielle Bernstein. And we also had a book coming out on the same fucking day. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm watching her sell out theaters of, you know, like on her book tour, you know, like totally sold out theaters. And then I had eight people at one of my book events and I was like, oh my God, like somebody kill me. So I know the compare and despair demons, but mm-hmm. the thing is, is that like the win for me, and I'm, I don't know if you're saying this too, I'm, I'm curious, is that I recognize it so fast, like within a minute now, I know that it's happening and I use my tools. And cause before I would just let that take me down and I would have like not gone on a book tour at all. I'm like, well, if, if Gabby's like selling out theaters, you know, then clearly I am a failure because of that. Like, and I would let that dictate my decisions, my behavior, my feelings, my future. And that's, that's, that's not okay for me. And that's why I used to live my life. And now I just, now I see it happen and I'm like, I have mantras and I'm like, okay, well that just happened. And I, I work on things just like being super happy for her. I'm like, get it girl. You know, it's like, God, she's worked her ass off for that. She deserves it. So those are the kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can relate to that a lot. The, something that I used to do, um, you know, in feeling jealousy or in these types of things that I would need to sort of like mentally cut the other person down in order to feel better. Like, well, this is Instagram is just a highlight reel or well, that like I had to like find like something wrong with the person in order for it to be okay. As opposed to, it was funny, like the reaction that I had today was really different was looking at, okay, this kind of jealousy is obviously like some kind of indication that like, what does, what is this person doing that I want to be doing? Or like trying to use it as like a roadmap instead. Cause it was such a strong feeling of like, okay, what is this here? And it's not about her and it's not about, you know, her success or her experiences or whatever. Exactly. Like good for her. That's fine. But like, what in this, what do I actually want to be doing? And sort of like trying to turn it around. And that was the thing that uh, like let it be, 
you know, more helpful or that I could let go of it. But it was just, like, it was just funny watching it happen. <laughs> Isn't it funny how you, I think when you do self-help long enough, you almost become like the narrator of your life. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to write a blog post about this. I know. <laughs> As yeah. it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Being a writer and being like steeped yes. in self-help stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> so pivoting a tiny bit, something that I know that you believe um, is the, that the concept of being strong and like giving zero fucks is actually harmful. And I would love to hear more about this. Okay. Oh my gosh. I got to put my hair in a ponytail for this one. <laughs> yeah. Those are, those are kind of two separate topics that I like to talk about, but I'll kind of lump it into one. Um, okay. So the zero fucks mentality is something that I, I've, I've written about because I can to- first, I want to start out and say like, I, I see the sentiment and like, I can get on board with that. And really what it's saying is don't care about what everyone thinks of you. Don't, you know, don't not go after your goals because you're again, going back to like worried about what other people think. So that, you know, that's the, that's what it kind of stands for. But when we see it on a meme or on Pinterest or on a t-shirt, then we make up that we have to, to have to not care about what everyone thinks of us. And I think that's where disconnection happens. And it's just confusing for people. So I also think that in this social media world, we are now more connected than ever, but we are actually more disconnected than ever. We're not having these, um, you know, heart to heart conversations and these deep connections with people or where we can accept feedback from people that we trust and and care about. So I, you know, I, I believe that there's a spectrum. There's like the people who give lots of fucks and those are the people pleasers that we were just talking about. And then there's the people that are trying to give zero fucks. And I think they're just like struggling over there and confused and, and just pushing everyone away. So I like to say, like, let's be somewhere in the middle and find out who are the people in your life. And you might have different people for different areas of your life, whether it's at work or, you know, your female friendships, et cetera. And who are those people that you can, where you do care? You know, it's about caring about the important things in your life, caring about the important people in your life. That's, that's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. And then the concept of being strong Oh my gosh, where do I even begin with this? Um, personally, it was something that I identified with. I come from a long legacy of um, strong Hispanic women who the, the family motto was like, don't take shit from anyone. And that I realized later was also creating disconnection. I would tell myself just to muscle through it and you know you can do this never let him see you sweat and i think too stereotypically as women we don't want to be seen as emotional because we get you know we get labeled uh, hysterical or you know volatile unhinged like all of these things that culturally we don't don't get me started on that whole topic but I, you know that's where i think some of this identity comes from and we just we are also i think uncomfortable with people's other people's discomfort. We're uncomfortable with our own discomfort and we're uncomfortable with other people's. So we tell people to be strong because we can't be with it. Mm -hmm. So I know I threw a lot out there. No, no, no. That's, that's very real. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, each of the, everything that we're talking about could be its own like nine hour conversation. Right. I'm like very aware of that. And uh, I think that, yeah, we, I think you said it so perfectly that we're really uncomfortable with our own discomfort and also with other people's. And so it's just like, lock it up, give no fucks, be strong, right? And like that, that's not a fix for everything. Be, you know, be a badass. And 
I just, I want to change the definition of what it means to kick ass, what it means to be a badass, what it means to be strong to me, like, like, let's turn it on its head. Like to me, being strong is actually asking for help is actually telling somebody like I struggle today. I saw this girl on Instagram and I got so jealous and you know, like these types of things where, um, and it's to the right people. And I don't think it's for everyone that you have to blog about it or start a podcast or put it on your Facebook status. I don't think that that's for everyone, but I think that if you can find the right people, people. And you have to be intentional about going out and finding these people and, and nurturing these relationships. They don't just fall into your lap. Unfortunately, I wish that they did, but they don't. I learned that the hard way when we moved and I was like, where are my girls at? <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I'm not doing anything to make friends. <laughs> but it's, it's, um, especially when we become an adult and we don't have like these built in communities like college or um, especially when you work from home and you're not, you don't have coworkers anymore. It can be tricky to, to foster those relationships, but it is imperative. Yeah. That's actually a, a little side detour conversation that I would love to have, because this is something that I hear about a lot when people are willing to be honest, the question of like, how do you make friends as an adult? And so given that you have moved a couple times, like in the not so distant past, and I had that experience, I've been in Bend now for a little over three years, but the first year and a half, I was like mostly miserable because I didn't have any friends and it sort of dawned on me. Okay, well I work from home alone, so I don't have, I'm not going to make friends through work here locally. I don't have kids, so I'm not going to make friends that and it was sort of like all the things that I could think of that are how people usually make friends and I just thought how do, how do you do just like walk up to people and be like will you please be my friend you know it's, yeah. as I've shared that with other people I think it's more common than is is often discussed so can you talk about your experience with that like how did you make friends in this new place that you yeah. moved it's such a great question. And yeah, so we moved from San Diego where both my husband and I were born and raised. We moved to Utah. This was in 2011, I think it was, somewhere around there. And I I really didn't know, honestly, that it was going to... I assumed, I legit assumed that about, it would take me about six months and I would have this like sisterhood circle. like, And it would we would just be great. And we'd like make flower crowns and have like friendship circles or... I don't know what I was thinking, but I remember it was like a year in and I was crying on the phone to my best friend. She lived back in Orange County and I'm like, where are they? Like, I don't have any friends out here. And she's like, well, what have you been doing to, to meet people? And I was like, well, nothing. Um, and at that time, my kids were still little enough where they weren't in elementary school yet. And so I didn't have really anything. So I had to be intentional. That's when I started playing derby. Mm-hmm. And I, um, it was just, it was one action step for me to, I joined a gym and I started playing derby. So that was like two things that I did to try to make friends. And then also who ended up being my really good friend out there was the the woman that did my hair. And I just would actually ask her to hang out with me. Like, Hey, do you want to go have dinner? Hey, does your family want to come over on Sunday for a barbecue? And just really making an effort instead of waiting for somebody else to do it. And then when we moved, so I didn't end up being best friends with anybody from Derby or from my gym, but again, it was like, I had to take action in order to do it. And then when we moved, um, again, when we moved to North Carolina, I was in a little bit different place. It's a little bit easier. I feel like when your kids are in elementary school, cause there's, there's lots of things going on and you meet other parents. And I met this one woman who is still my friend and Um, it's that whole thing, you know, Brene Brown talks about trust and how it's built in small increments over time. So I think we've all had that experience where we share too much when we're like, I really like this person. We like the same music. I think we should be best friends. (laughs) Drag me. Here's here's all my deepest, darkest secrets. And I've done that before. And 
I knew that that's not how you make friends <laughs> that scares people. Or if they do end up liking it, it can kind of be, it can just not turn out so great. So, cause I'm the type, I'm a former love addict. So I am like all in, like I fall in love, whether it's a romantic relationship or it's a girlfriend, I am like, let's be smothering together like, on the first date. <laughs> let's get married. And so I, I have to watch out for that. And so I, I made this friend and I was really conscious of it. And you just, I share a little bit and then she would share a little bit. And then, so we, we did this back and forth for a little while and I'll never forget it. We were standing in my driveway. This was probably last summer and I'm sharing something with her and I totally thought it was an okay story to share with her. But as I'm sharing it, the look on her face, like, you know, <laughs> and she's, and I'm realizing, and I'm like, oh, this is, she's not, oh no, should I keep telling the story? Or should I like back it out now? It was too late. And I was like, oh my God, okay, maybe she's not ready for that type of depth in our friendship. And so it's been like, it, so it's, it's kind of like the three steps forward, two steps back or two steps forward, three steps back sometimes. And that's how friendships are built. And it's like dating and it's exhausting sometimes. I'm not going to lie, but I think that it's, you have to keep trying. Like it's not for sissies. Like I hate to use that word, but you just have to keep trying. Yeah. I, that mirrors so much of my own experience. I, I don't know if even lucky is the right word, but I feel like I, in the past, have the people who have become my super, super close friends. It happens really quickly. It's kind of like a light switch thing. Like, okay, I'm obsessed with you. You're obsessed with me. Let's do this thing. Yeah. Right? Like, And that that's been really the only way that I knew how to make friends. And it had worked. And I had these really great friends, but they sort of lived all over because I'd moved so much. Yeah. And it wasn't until moving here. And I was like, why am I not meeting my light switch people? Where, you know, like I had met plenty of nice people, but I didn't feel that immediate, oh my God, I'm obsessed with you. Let's talk about all the things, which tends yeah. to be, I'm an intense person. I know that that's true. So when you were saying that story mm -hmm. of like oversharing and wanting to walk it back, like it's I can, like the worst feeling I can relate <laughs> it at like at levels that I, I can't even tell you, I can relate so much. And the thing that really sort of turned the corner for me here was I had to have a talk with myself of, okay, what if you never make a best friend here? Do you have enough really close friends? Like, could you have some softer friendships? Could you have some acquaintances? Could you be, you know, someone who lets it have like a slow burn? Like what you said, you share something, they share something. I just hadn't had patience or skills for that. And it was once I gave myself permission that every person didn't have to be my best friend, that it wound up happening that I made a lot of really close friends that like, yeah. just like taking the pressure off. I'm like, well, if I'm not obsessed with them instantly, it's not gonna, I don't know. It was, it was a whole learning experience for sure. It is. And it's just, <clears throat> I think the bottom line of it is, is that you have to be intentional and you have to have patience, which is so hard. Yeah. Can't everything just be amazing all at once right away? I wish it was. God. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about your book. Um, your new book, which first of all is such a good title, How to Stop Feeling Like Thank Shit. You. It's like the most real. <laughs> How did you come up with that? I'd actually, there's a, there's a little story behind it. So I would, I found myself right after my training with, with Brene Brown and her senior faculty, I would, uh, I would talk about these same behaviors, you know, the perfectionism, the people pleasing, the being strong, overachieving. And because it was so common with all of my community and what I would say over and over again is, you know, we think that we, that these behaviors are, are protecting us and helping us get ahead. And they, they work for a little while until they start to make us feel like shit. And 
when the list started to expand of the behaviors, I knew it was a book. And when I um, just really started doing more more research on it, I just thought like, okay, then this is going to be the title of the book. I don't know a better title of it. And um, my literary agent loved it. And so we ran with it. Mm-hmm. It's just like so to the point. And it's, it's funny. I, this is like a really interesting time in my life for us to be having this conversation. Cause I feel like I went so far down the, like I read a thousand self-help books, like take all the webinars, do all the things like burned out completely. Right kind of turned away from it for years and then realized, wait, I actually really value growth and change and development. That's like a core part of who I am. Anyone who listens to this knows that. So, okay, maybe it doesn't have to be an all or nothing where I read, you know, all these things or I like am totally against it. And so it's been interesting, the things that have kind of come onto my radar lately. And I mean, I just remember when I read the title of your book, I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) Cause that's it. That's all we want, right? Like how to stop feeling like shit. Like that's like the most real, like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think a large part of it isn't just these 14 things that I talk about in the book, but I, I, I repeat myself probably ad nauseum in the book about doing the actual work. Yes. I have talked to so many women and them saying, and I, and I, I'm really candid about it in the book. And I'm like, you have probably read all the books. You make your list that, that includes like green smoothies, yoga, meditation, listen to this podcast, follow this person on Instagram. And you feel like you're doing something right. Cause you're kind of taking action. But when it comes to actually doing the work and what that includes is like, you know, reading the questions at the end of the chapter or, or if, a, if a self-help book comes with a workbook, do you actually write it out and, and do the journaling prompts and questions that these authors have so thoughtfully put together for you? Or, you know, it, it's it's so easy to to do the work without doing the work and and make you feel, it's sort of like treading water. You know, kind of like I was like writing my friends' names in the margins. <laughs> like that's not doing the work. I call that like half-assing it or being on the self-help hamster wheel. And um, I think that only feels good for a certain amount of time. And then people like kind of throw their hands up in the air. And it's like, why isn't my life changing? Oh my god, I, you were not on video right now, but my head is like literally in my hands, and I can't like this like the. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I feel like you just, I mean, you just described me in a way that I'm like, I need to just like back away slowly from this conversation. It's like too real, but (laughs) not really. Of course I'm here for it, but that's, that's the thing. It's like the difference between doing fake work and doing real work. Like I think about this in terms of writing all the time, like I've set myself some ambitious writing goals for this year and, you know, you know, write this many words a day, do this kind of thing. And like there, it is just black and white. Like you either did the work or you didn't. And I feel like so much of the, um, anytime you're trying to improve yourself, are you actually doing the work or are you just like kind of playing at the work? Like it's one thing. The idea of it. Oh my God. Right. Like that you, when you read, when you read a a well-written self-help book, right. From someone who knows what they're talking about, it's really easy to feel good about yourself just from the process of reading it. Cause they're saying all of these great things, right? And you like have you this vision yeah, of who you could be. And then you think that's sort of like good enough, right? It's like the inspiration high, but then it wears off because you didn't answer the questions at the end of the chapter. And you didn't like, the reason that I stopped reading self-help books is because I had to get honest with myself of, I would have to live 10 lifetimes to put into practice all of the things that I've read about and learned and not done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and not only does it wear off, but then what I find a lot is people end up feeling worse about themselves because they're like, I've read all these books and it resonated so much with me. And I felt like that author was speaking to me and why, I think you said this when you were on my podcast, like in order to change your life, you have to change your life. And that's what, like, you can't just, you can't just change in theory. You know, it's like, you have to, like, I have a client right now. 
um, who's the same. Like she was a self-help junkie forever and ever and ever. And she went home for the holidays and had like this big blowout with her family, as many of us do. And it's like all this family of origin shit. And her challenge was to actually, cause she, and she knows what the problem is. It's just a matter of having a hard conversation with her parents and her sister. And she went and did it and she's messaging me and she's like, if you would have told me that I would have been able to have this conversation six months ago, I would have not believed you. And personally, I think the hardest stuff that we do in our life is the work that we will do with our families. Because people tell me all the time, Nicole, like, oh, you're so brave, Andrea, for coming and telling your story and on your podcast and writing your books. And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, that's easy. You know what's really fucking hard? having a hard conversation with my mother, you know, setting a boundary with my sister. Like that is like, I get goosebumps just saying that because I'm like, that shit will take me down (laughs) and I will procrastinate on that for like six months. So it's like, it's stuff like that. Like people listening, like think, think about what are you, what are the conversations that you need to have? And like, that's the, that's just an example of doing the work. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's, again, like to come back to from like a sport analogy or, you know, running or like these sort of experiences that I know we also have in common. It's like there, you can't just read, but this is why running changed my life. Cause you can't just like read about running and then like be able to run the marathon. It's literally yeah, not possible. You can't procrastinate all week and then run all your miles on Sunday. Going to get injured. Right. And so it was like, it's like, these sound like really basic lessons and maybe other people learned this earlier in their life, but I certainly did not until I was an adult be like, Oh, I actually have to do the work on a consistent basis uh, and that right? that's like consistency <laughs> is the answer to everything. And I don't want it to be the answer to everything because it's not sexy at all. No. It certainly is not. <laughs> you know, it's also not sexy to feel like you're going to throw up before you have a conversation with someone or, or just that like, ugh, just, you know, when you like the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you're having to like work on look at looking at your own stuff, like taking responsibility. Like I'll give you a quick example. So I remember having an argument with my husband. This was a few years ago and we're standing in the kitchen and we're having this disagreement, this heated disagreement. And I realized halfway through the conversation that he's right. And I, (laughs) it was that moment where I'm like, oh man, like I need to stop what I'm doing and admit it. And I did. And I stopped and I said, oh my God, this is my stuff. And I said, you're right. I am sorry. And this is totally, I, I got triggered and this is my stuff. The look on his face, like that, like, he just was like, wait, what just happened? (laughs) Am I being punked? Um, but like, that is just like the most uncomfortable thing. Like that moment of, am I going to just like keep arguing for the sake of saving face? Or am I going to admit that I am wrong and own my stuff and be like, to me, that is the definition of adulting, like that kind of work. So that never feels good. That didn't feel good, but at the, in the moment it didn't, but at the end of the day, it felt amazing to actually, I'm like, oh, this is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is what a healthy human being looks like. Yeah. The thing that that just brought to mind, I think it was from Danielle Laporte's Firestarter Sessions, I think, although I could be misquoting or it could be wrong, but um, the I think that was the first time that I saw the question posed, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? Yes. My therapist asked me that one time. And mm-hmm. I was just like, that's, I mean, that's literally the most, I ask myself that all the time. Do you want to be right or do you want to be free? Because they're not yeah. the same. 
you know? They're and, not the same. Yeah. Oh my oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's doing the work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so I think another reason that I think this conversation is necessary to have is because I think that it is really common that people like me that feel burnt out on, I guess, like what we'll call self-help or whatever, although that's even a huge category, when actually they're just burnt out on themselves not doing the work. That was, and I mean, I think it's both. Like, I think there is a fatigue of like sort of the, how personal improvement can and has been co-opted by capitalism and like advertising works Mm -hmm. by saying there's something wrong with you. But if you buy this thing, you know, wear this lipstick and then, you know, so obviously that's like a whole issue in itself. So there's some like real fatigue there, which exists. But then I think if I'm really honest and what you're, everything that you're saying is making me admit all over again is mostly I was just exhausted from the cycle of reading the things and then not doing the work, which I think is really common. Right. Um, yeah. And it just, it feels like you're on a treadmill and you're just like not going anywhere. And that's mm-hmm. what I was, you know, circling back to what I was saying before is that I think people end up feeling worse about themselves because again, they feel like they're doing all this work, but they're not getting any results at all. Can't mm-hmm. figure it out. So, um, the dedication, I, I personally am really interested in reading the dedication pages of everyone's books. I always think it's really interesting who people dedicate their books to. And I loved yours and wanted to hear more about it. The dedication, it says this book is dedicated to all the women who've decided to light a fire in their lives. What does Mm -hmm. that mean to you? That was about, I thought long and hard about that. And I knew that I wanted to dedicate this, this book to my community because this book was born from them and just from me listening to them and listening to their stories and, and countless clients and people in my classes. And, and it is for the women who are doing the work. And I think that you do kind of have to, I mean, this might be really dramatic, but, but, but I like to be dramatic. You have to kind of like light your life on fire and burn it all down. Sometimes I had to, I I don't necessarily think that it's that dramatic for everyone. I don't think that you need to have like a life changing thing happen to you to change your life. But personally, that's what I had to do. I had to burn it all down. I had to unlearn so many things that I had learned from my own family of origin through our culture, through past relationships and start over again. And that's what, that's who I was dedicating the book to is, is not even to the women who had dramatically burned it all down and started all over and completely changed their lives. But even the women who were just starting to, to, to look at it and just to say like, wow, you know, doing, doing, actually doing the work, whether they just were starting on chapter one with the inner critic and going like, Oh crap, I talk so much shit to myself. How am I going to, how am I going to change that? Like that's lighting a fire in your life. Mm -hmm. At the heart of it, what made you decide to write this book? Like why this book and why now? I think that I, again, it was, it was selfishly, my own experience in these behaviors that I was doing. And then partly from my training with, with Brene Brown and and the faculty there and noticing these patterns over and over again. And then it ended up being kind of timely. Like I started this book, the idea for it came to me in 2015. I wrote the book in 2016. Then the election happened, which, you know, none of us were expecting. And I realized like, Oh my God, like it's, it's time. It's time for women to, rise up. And I feel like we're finally being heard and listened to, thank God. And I think that we have been using these behaviors as a way to desperately try to get ahead and try to be heard and try to kind of cover up these hurts and pains and struggles that we have. 
Mm-hmm. It's just not working. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about the title, obviously, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. Um, the And then the tagline being 14 habits that are holding you back from happiness. So can we get a little bit more specific? Like, can you give an example of maybe a couple of the habits that you talk about that um, are common and that you feel like are holding women back from whether it's happiness or whatever else? Yeah. So I start the... I start the chapter, or sorry, I start the book with the inner critic. And I, I intentionally did that because I feel like it's one of those things that pretty much everybody struggles with, whether, and a lot of them actually overlap. So there's a separate chapter in there for compare and despair, which is, you know, what you were telling us the story about what happened to you and, and me as well. So I, you know, I think that everyone can can relate to that. And it is that thing that many, so many of us, you know, talk shit to ourselves and tell ourselves like, oh, I can't. I can't create that business because it's already been done a hundred times, or I'm never going to get that that raise because you know I haven't been here long enough, et cetera, et cetera, and, and 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 all the way down to some people, even body stuff. I think for women, our appearance and our bodies are tend to be our number one shame triggers. So that's something. I mean, that's kind of an obvious one that that can hold us back. But but even you know, I, one of the the more popular chapters in there is numbing out. And, um, we, we do that because for so many different reasons, again, another nine hour conversation, but it's, it's the thing that we, for many people, it's just, it's, it's not even like a chronic addiction. It's just something to take the edge off and like life is overwhelming and I need to just like take a little mini vacation. That's what I used to say, but it's, it's holding you back. It's, it's in so many different ways. And, um, I just saw over and over again these behaviors again that work for a, a you know for a short time, and we think that they're protecting us from shame and criticism and failure. But at the end of the day, they're holding us back and making us feel like shit. Okay, I want to talk about the numbing out because mm-hmm. um, that's something that's very interesting to me. One of the things that I had to come to terms with when getting sober was my tendency to want to, I mean, self-sabotage, numb out, like so much of the drinking. <laughs> I mean, th- there were many reasons for the drinking, but like numbing out was one of them. And once you remove sort of your main way of doing stuff, once you have the self-awareness to sort of look around and see how quickly you replace it, like, oh, well, if I can't numb out with that, I'm going to, you know, watch Grey's Anatomy for 19 totally. hours or I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, and so I don't even really know what my question is, but I think that this idea of numbing out, the reason that it interests me is because I, mean, I was just going to say we can't be awake all the time, but maybe we can. Maybe that's like enlightenment. I don't know. But that like <laughs> the difference between the like real sort of self-care necessity of taking a break, whatever that looks like versus sort of like what, what the line is between like numbing out is helpful versus harmful or I don't, I don't, again, I don't really have a specific question, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I think, I think I know what you're, what you're asking. It's like, what's the difference between comfort and then full blown numbing out? Yeah. Because like you said that these things work for us until they don't, or like, yeah, the point when it becomes something that holds you back from happiness or from what, you know, whatever else that it is that you want. It's because I see this being something where it's like not all or nothing, right? It's not that you, cause you're certainly not arguing cut all comfort out of your life, right? Sure. No, so, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wish that there was kind of a handy dandy like table chart spreadsheet that I could <laughs> have like here's comfort and then here's numbing. But because it's, 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 
kind of tricky because a lot of the things that we use to self-soothe and comfort ourselves are the same things that we can use to numb out. And I, I love that even, even Brene Brown tells this story of when she got a lot of criticism one day um, from her TED talk and she was reading all these comments online and people were being really mean and nasty to her. And, and, and she says, I did what any trained health professional should do. I grabbed a jar of peanut butter and a blanket and watched 10 hours of Downton Abbey. And I was like, thank God, you know, like, <laughs> but I, I think that, um, I think that many of us do sort of this conscious numbing out and, and I do it too sometimes where I'm just like, I can't deal with my life right now. I am going to go and do this other thing that, um, that is going to just kind of make me check out for a little while. I think when it becomes a problem is when it's chronic and when it just is kind of in a, in a self-sabotaging way. And also when it becomes sort of um, I guess this is what chronic is. It's like when it when it becomes just your, your immediate go-to and it is like a habit that you kind of see that it's getting a little bit out of control. So I think that how that how you come to that is through just doing this work and just being more and more conscious of it. And it, like, is it negatively affecting your life? Like for you, Nicole, like I don't think it's negatively affecting your life if you watch 10 hours of Grey's Anatomy. But for some people, you know, like, are you getting really behind on work? Have you not left your house in three days? Are you ignoring all calls and texts from people? Like that's, that's when I want my clients to tell me about it. You know what I mean? But my clients tell me all the time. They're like, yeah, I just, I, I had the worst day yesterday and I, I watched, you know, four hours of, of Sons of Anarchy. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. you feel better now? Like, you know what I mean? But as long as you're also dealing with what you are running from, I think that's key too. Yeah, I think so too. I think like I said, how I said before that, you know, consistency is the unsexy answer that I don't want to be true. The same is for sure the case with honesty that like so much of this, I think one of the um, stories that I tell myself that doesn't serve me is, you know, that something is too complicated, like this issue of the numbing out, or I don't understand that, or it's so complicated, or how do you figure out the difference? And the answer is, if I'm actually quiet and honest with myself, I know the point at which something no longer feels good when it goes from being comfort to feeling icky. And I, I know what that feels like and like that it's just, I don't know, it's the the ability to sort of ask yourself that question because it really is different to do something consciously and to say like, I'm going to rage eat this cake or I'm going to, you know, whatever the thing is. And maybe that is comforting to a time, but eventually it switches and you you do know what that feels like. Yeah. Did you say rage eat? Is that yeah, a thing? I don't know. I, is <laughs> I it a thing? It's, I, I think it's a thing. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I, I don't eating was never my thing when I was really angry or upset. My, mine was, mine was drinking or just like checking out in different ways, but I, I love that term. Oh yeah. But now I don't drink. So <laughs> That's right. mine is planning and control. Like I replace, yeah. well, like even backing up from that, I was, I was a, just a, a just a savage codependent in my twenties. And I was also, I mentioned I was a love addict. And so I, I could always sort of put down the bottle and, you know, been drank and partied and stuff like that in my twenties, but drinking, I could take it or leave it. But as soon as I like w- right around the time I turned 30, I got help from that. And I was in 12 step programs and I was like, woohoo, so much better. I don't do that anymore. The, you know, the codependence and the love addiction. But then, I mean, it was like, I almost immediately picked up the bottle and that's when it all kind of came tumbling down with drinking. And then when I quit drinking, I was like, well, what now? And it's, it's planning and work and control for me that I have to really watch out for. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the control thing pops up for me too. And it's just like so cute that I think I can control all the things. I can't do that. That's not real. <laughs> I try to control the most ridiculous things. Like I, I was talking about this, I was talking to somebody about it that my, I'll give you a quick example. So my, um, my husband and I, we have a, we have a 10 year old son and an eight year old daughter and my daughter's in second grade and they had to do a project on a penguin for school. And they got to pick up, I guess there's like a bunch of different kinds of penguins. And she and I had decided that she would do her report on the fairy penguin, which we both thought was very cute. So then I, something happened. I got like a big work project or something and I had to have my husband take over to help her with this project. So then they finish it and I see the poster board and everything. And they did the emperor penguin. And she and I specifically had talked about not doing the emperor penguin because most of the class was going to do the emperor penguin and she wanted it to be a little bit different. And I was like, I felt like my blood boil a little bit. Like, <laughs> I was like two seconds away from having a conversation with my husband and be like, Oh no, 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 this is not no. And I stopped myself and I thought, okay, Andrea, like it's a fucking penguin <laughs> report in second grade. Is it that big of a deal? And that's really a question that I ask myself when it, when I, when I find myself really wanting to control something. It, and I, I love the question that you posed earlier, you know, would you rather be right or would you rather be free? But also, um, what if it really wasn't a big deal? Like, is Ugh, this really yeah. not big of a deal? It comes down to just the plain and simple pick your battles. That was not a battle that made any difference in anyone's life. But in some strange world, it brings me comfort to have it go as I had planned. It would have made me feel better to start the whole damn thing over again and do the report on the fairy penguin. Mm-hmm. Is that crazy? <laughs> I mean, no, not at all. I mean, well, if so, then I am as well. But so in that moment, is it, you know, because you've referenced before, like, well, like you do the work and you use your tools. But so then what you're just like, had to ask yourself, like, would it really be that big of a deal? Is it just like you take a moment of pause? Like, what is your what is the work in that situation to not like flip out and redo the thing about the other kind of penguin? Yeah, it just I really ha- it is. I got, I literally have the word surrender tattooed on my arm because of situations like that. I have to let go and ask myself consciously that question. Is it that big of a deal? So as we're recording this, I just got back from being gone for five days on a book tour, on part of my book tour. And so my husband's home with my kids and he does things a little bit differently. Like he grocery shops differently than I do. And he buys things that I normally don't. And it just like, that's one of the things where I'm like, okay, so for instance, <laughs> listen to this. I got a text when I was gone. So he was apparently making spaghetti when I was for dinner. Yay. So he sends me a text and it was so odd. And he goes, what do you do with the leftover uncooked spaghetti? And I'm like, I put it back in the pantry. Like, why would he ask me that? So odd. And so whatever, end of text conversation. So I got home last night and I look in the pantry and he had ripped open the box of, <laughs> of spaghetti. So it was like exposed and then put it back in the pantry. That's why he was asking me, like, do you put it in a Ziploc bag? Like, do you have a special container for it? Like that's, but that's what he was getting at. I didn't realize he had like savagely ripped open the box. <laughs> so I usually... I usually just open it and then tape it back up anyway. So it's like it, it, that what some people listening would be like, that is so not that big of a deal. But like for me just to be like, Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. But I mean, and, and also the small things are the big things because oftentimes the way that we react to that is indicative of the way that we do react to things that are more important. Right. And I feel like sometimes it's easier to practice doing the work on something that's lower stakes. 
Right. And yes. And I think that if I would have gotten really upset about that, it wouldn't have been about the pasta. Like it's about the I mean, fact it's, it's that never about I feel the pasta. guilty yeah. for traveling. I feel like my husband doesn't do as good of a job as I do. Um, I, I'm feeling disconnected from him because I've been traveling. Like all that other stuff. That's really what it's about. It's like never about the pasta mm-hmm. or the fairy penguin. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> there's been a couple parts of this conversation that I'm going to need to just go back and like replay for myself on a loop or like put on a post-it. And that's definitely it. It's never about the pasta. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the title of my next book. (laughs) Oh my God. Hey, listen, I will read that book. That's amazing. Um, so, okay. Speaking of your book, you had a personal crisis in the middle of writing this book. Tell me about that and how that informed the work. Yeah. So I was, I was probably, I don't know, about 75% done with the manuscript. So my manuscript was due to the publisher on December 31st. And I am not late. I guess it's like a thing that authors like turn in their manuscripts late. I, I do not do that. I, obviously, I <laughs> Ding, 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 control. I know. Like, I'm like, what? That would not happen over here. So I was totally on time and going along smoothly. And it was end of September of that year. And we got word that um, my dad was really sick and that they weren't sure what was wrong. He was anemic and he was in the hospital. And about a week later, they discovered he had a rare form of leukemia and um, was terminal. And they said he had about six months. So I flew home to San Diego to see him. And I had just seen him in June and he was totally fine. <clears throat> I flew home to see him and I was like, I, I called my siblings and I'm like, he does not have six months. Um, he was unrecognizable. And so that was, let's see, I went home on October 5th and he was dead on October 16th. And I was with him when he died. And like, I had never lost anyone before in my life. I lost my cat when I was in high school. And that was like the most traumatic thing that I had ever been through in terms of losing somebody like that. And so I was in for it. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that type of grief. And, um, I, it was just excruciating. Like, how else do I describe it? You know, watching my father, not only watching him disintegrate in front of me, but literally watch him die. And, um, I had to go home and finish writing a self-help book. And I, they gave me about three weeks of an extension. That's all they really could, could give me. And I spent a month just writing like dark poetry about, grief and about him and about us. And I had to get that out of my system. I absolutely a thousand percent had to. And it was such an interesting experience being sober because had this happened six years ago, I guarantee you I would have drank my ass all the way through that thing and um, just been drunk for most of that, especially those first few months because the, the, those were the most painful but it just it was one of the most raw experiences i've ever had both his death and the and the the um the immediate aftermath but um i did end up going back to the numbing chapter and writing about that because it you know it changed how i looked at things like that and um and uh changed the ending of the book but for the most part i think it sounds really cliche but it it did it, at the end of the day it was a gift for me in in learning how to how to manage through that um, it's still really painful. It's only been like what, 14, 16 months or so. But I think that the biggest lesson in all of it for me, honestly, is that I I never trusted that I could actually deal with something like that, especially sober. I didn't think that I could walk through that that kind of fire. And what I realized is that, like, yes, I do have the resilience to do that. My body knows what to do. And I never trusted my, myself enough or my body enough to be able to open up that 
box, you know, that Pandora's box of grief and just let myself grieve as I needed to. Mm -hmm. Do you think that getting to the place where you are strong enough and equipped to deal with that, do you tie that in with sobriety? I absolutely do. And it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been on some recovery podcasts and the, there was a, there was one woman who said, this isn't a book about recovery, but it is a book about recovery. And I was like, you're absolutely right. (laughs) Because in recovery, we learn to actually look at our emotions. I think for so many of us that are, whether you identify as being an addict or alcoholic, or just someone who really struggles with your relationship with alcohol, um, we have a hard time with our emotions. I mean, that's one of the reasons we drink is because our emotions scare us. They're too painful and we just are afraid of them and don't, don't, don't trust that we will be okay if we walk through them, which is the only way to process them. Right. So yeah, I, I totally think that, um, I think so. And I also, I always kind of wondered, I don't know if anybody else who's, who's sober thinks this, like I, I always kind of wondered, like, I wonder if, you know, one of my parents dies, if I'm going to drink or if one of my children dies, would I drink? It would be like this. I think about that all the time. Elapse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, this, I mean, this is sort of a segue, but I'm always interested. I am trying to think if this is true. Other than my husband, I don't really have any good, I mean, good friends who don't drink at all. Is that true? I think, well, maybe the fact that no one's coming to mind is indicative, right? So I always really value the opportunities to talk to other people, even if their situations have been different that are sober too, about things like this. It's those like weird, tiny, especially when enough time has gone by, like May of this year will be seven years for me. So you and I are on a pretty similar Mm -hmm. time span. That's a long time, like six or seven years is like that's, and I've changed so much in that time period. And sometimes I'll think, I mean, this isn't great, but sometimes I'm like, was it really as bad as I think? Could I drink and totally. like keep it under control or whatever? Mm-hmm. Which uh, the answer is probably no. And I'm not interested in playing that game. But I always think like, what would happen? What would, you know? Yeah. So yes, everything you're saying, I can relate to that so much. Like yeah. if this really traumatic thing happened, like what would it take for me to drink again? And what would that would look like? It would be a like? noble enough reason. Oh That's God. like where my mind goes. Like people would forgive me if I relapsed and, you know, and it was because my dad died. But I think that personally, when I start thinking things like that, that's when I've become complacent in my recovery and I need to look at that. And I definitely have. But, um, when, when he died, I didn't think about drinking until one day it was about two or three weeks afterwards. So it was still very much new. I was at home and I was, I was, either loading or unloading the dishwasher, one of the two, and nobody was home. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning and it just hit me like a ton of fucking bricks. And that's what grief does. Like sometimes it's not about like the anniversaries or birthdays or things like that, or, or, or funeral services. It's these like really quiet moments where we let enough quiet and space in where just the grief sort of washes over you like a tidal wave. And that happened. And I, and it was the kind of grief and I've never, well, no, I've experienced this one other time in my life when my, when I was going through my divorce, something hard happened, but where your knees buckle and like, you literally can't hold your own weight up. And that's a little bit of a scary feeling. So I collapse on the kitchen floor and I'm crying and crying and crying. And I thought the thought washed through my brain that a bottle of wine would make this all go away. And it 
kind of startled me, but didn't surprise me. It was like, Hey, old friend, (laughs) I know you. And I saw the next moment I saw my phone up on the counter. And my next thought was I need to, I need to call somebody because if I don't, I could get myself in big, big trouble, Mm -hmm. you know, cause then, then, and then it was like, well, nobody would know, you know, I could just go get a bottle of wine. I could come home and nobody would know. I would, you know, sober up enough before everybody came home, which was a total lie. I would have been totally drunk. And I texted a few of my friends and they talked me off the ledge and I did end up going to an AA meeting that night because it was pretty bad, but it's, it's, um, it fucking sucked. You know, it's like, I don't know what else to say about it. It was brutal. It was so brutal. Like now I know what people say when they say things like, I felt like the whole world was crashing down around me. I would get so angry at people for just existing. And I'm like, how dare you? breathe around me. Like your breathing is annoying me. And I would sit, I remember I was in an intersection one time and I was like, all of a sudden, so angry at all the people in this intersection in their cars. And I wanted to jump out and like, start telling people about my dad and like, how dare you not be so upset with me? How dare you just go about your life? Like nothing has happened when my whole world is falling apart. And it was just, it was an extreme, extremely lonely time, even though I have some amazing friends who were there for me, who would have dropped everything if I called them. Grief, the thing that surprised me about that kind of grief was how lonely it was. And um, I've talked to some people who have lost their parents and who were like, yeah, that's exactly the way it feels. And so when we have those, I mean, loneliness, from what I understand, loneliness, the feeling and emotion of loneliness hangs out around the same part of the brain as shame does. That's when we have to be careful as alcoholics, like, because that is just excruciating and we want to make that feeling go away. Yeah. Oof. I value your honesty so much. I think the, one of the things that, um, stands out for me, even in just like that honesty and that story that you shared is I think that there's a tendency to romanticize what change and growth actually look like. And like, I can relate obviously not to the specifics of your situation, but where you were saying of like, well, I could just go drink this wine and nobody would know whether it's the wine or any other behavior, right? This idea of like, well, I could do this and nobody would know. And even if that's true, like, even if you could get away with it, right? Like, so to speak, that you would know. And that like, that's, I've had a couple of those moments, you know, around drinking too, where I'm like, if if you're out of town or whatever, like, well, I could just like order a drink now and nobody would know. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. actually true. But the fact that I would know and that there's some kind of integrity that didn't exist before, like, that's what change looks like. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that I don't like fuck up monumentally in other areas of my life. But it always surprises me how it's really easy on like a glossy magazine cover to make change look or sound a certain way. But mostly it's really hard and it's shit. And it's just that moment of like, not making the same choice that you would have made before, even if you're crying, even if, you know, like any of those other things, even if you have to substitute in like another numbing out behavior, so you don't do the one that's worse for you. Like it just, it's not Mm -hmm. pretty and yet it's worth it. And that that's sometimes I have to, like when I tell myself that I haven't changed that much or I haven't made that much progress, I like look around at how I would have dealt with a situation two years ago, four years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago, I'll be like, no, no, that change is real. It's just slow and doesn't often look the way that I want it to look. Totally. And it's not glamorous. (laughs) And it's like in the trenches, it's in the trenches, like those, those decisions that we make, like the one I described of actually like calling a friend and saying like, I am struggling today. 
and I thought about drinking. Can you help me? And the, that those really vulnerable moments of, of asking for help, like that's when change happens. And that's when we gain the courage and confidence that like, oh my gosh, I can actually make it through this. I have to walk through it to get through it. And I like the whole very cliche, like this too shall pass. It actually is true. I know all the cliche things. It's like they're cliche for a reason. I was having a conversation right. with a friend the other day who, um, uh, she's a teacher and a student of hers was, uh, had been going or a past student of hers was going through their, their first really bad breakup. And, um, you know, she asked me, oh, I'm going to have to call and give advice to this person. And, you know, basically like was asking me for my advice on, you know, like what to tell someone going through a breakup. And I just had this moment of sitting there because I've only had one really terrible heartbreak in my life. And I think back to that time and it was like all of the advice, like it all sounds so cliche and so stupid. And so like none of it would have worked. I was like, the only thing I feel like that would have been helpful for me was for someone to acknowledge that like it's shit and so painful and it's just going to be that way until it's not. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not, you know, like it's, sure there's ugh. things you can do, like, you know, putting more energy into your friendships and like take a shower and leave that. Like there are practical things, of course, but like hard things are hard. The end, you know, and like it's, that, yeah, that's going to okay. be shit until it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and like, we can't put a time limit on it. And I think that that is so hard to, it's just, it's trusting that you are resilient, but when you're in it, it just, sometimes it feels like so impossible. Like, how can I actually make it through this? And, and I think that, that, that kind of grief was the ultimate for me when I got divorced and, you know, my husband had had an affair and, and that whole thing, it's like, it was, it was also grief, but it was different because there was also a ton of anger mixed into it. So for some reason I felt like, um, like I had been wronged. So it was a different kind of grief, but this one was it just, it, it took it to a whole new level. It was, it was loss. And the way that I describe it is, is I have never felt sorrow, like the definition of sorrow. I have never felt that before until my dad died. And that was, it was just a new emotion for me that I had to learn how to dance with. And, um, it just ugh, took me down and, and still does sometimes. I, I cried this morning about it just because mm-hmm. I'm on my book tour and I went to San Diego and and I knew that that city was going to hold a lot of weight for me because he was at my first book event in San Diego, the only one I did for my first book. And, you know, he wasn't going to be at this one. And um, I didn't, I knew that it was going to be emotional and it didn't hit me like until I got home. And so I cried for like, I just like a couple minutes, you know, like I'm so used to it now. Like, and I know that like, I'm like, okay, wipe my tears and have a drink of water and I'm good. But like before I would have been like, Oh no, crying. Just no, let's just do something else instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The process of just like letting yourself feel your feelings and it's going to take as long as it takes. And maybe it's going to be forever in some capacity. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so much. Oh, big stuff. Um, <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's real. I, I mean, that's what this show is all about. Um, when it comes to the book or really anything else, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel really fired up about discussing? Um, I think that we hit most of the, you know, my favorite chapters. I think the only one that I love discussing is, is, but it very much is connected to numbing out is the concept of isolating and hiding out. I see that a lot now, you know, especially what I said earlier, you know, we're, we're very connected because of social media, but we're very disconnected. And what I see is, is a lot of people going through hard times and they don't reach out for help. Um, and they just tell themselves like, 
either they're embarrassed about it and don't want anybody to know their problems or they just think that they can muscle through it or they procrastinate about it. And I'm like, Oh, I'll reach out next week. I know they're you know busy or whatever. And, and they never do. And then they're isolated and isolated. And for some people that manifests, you know, that can kick up their, uh, you know, maybe already lingering depression and anxiety and things like that. So I talk about friendships and like how to reach out and how to, you know, nurture relationships and, and just, doing the very, very scary thing of being vulnerable and talking about your struggles. Yeah. I think that how to reach out is key because so much of what you're talking about and so much of what this book and your other work is about, it's like on the surface, I feel like everyone's like, oh yeah, well obviously like don't numb out or don't talk shit to yourself or like the things make complete sense. But I think the disconnect is between recognizing that that's not necessarily a behavior that leads to happiness or growth, but then how do you actually do it, right? That it's like when you're sitting there and thinking, you know, oh, maybe I've been isolating a lot for the last couple of weeks and that doesn't feel great and I should reach out, but how, what do I say? You know, it's like those, it's like the actual practical nature of this kind of stuff, which is where I feel like a lot of people get stuck or it's where I get stuck for sure. Yeah. And I definitely think that it's, it's, it's one of those things about, and Brene Brown says this so well, you know, it's about sharing the right story with the right person at the right time. That sums it up so well. Cause I think we've all had those moments where we share the right story with the wrong person. And we keep, I think for a lot of people, it's like siblings and, or parents, we keep wanting them to show up for us. And it seems logical, right? It's our family but they keep not like my mom, bless her heart. She loves to, she's like the silver lining person. And every time I share something hard, she's, she always is like, Oh honey, you know, tomorrow's a new day. And I remember when my husband lost his job when we first moved to North Carolina and it was not fun. (laughs) It was awful. We had just moved here and it was so hard. And I was crying on the phone with her and she was like, Oh honey, he's so smart. He's going to find another job in no time. And I completely lost my shit. And I was like, mom, and I, I had to circle back and apologize because I did not handle it well. And it was an overdue conversation that I should have had before. And I just said, I really wish sometimes that you would just say like, that, yeah, that sucks. And I'm so sorry you're going through that. And I, I basically you know, told her she was wrong. And I think I might have even hung up on her. But um, I just now I just learned that you know my mom's doing the best she can. She, is, she doesn't have the tools to be able to sit with her adult children when they go through really hard times. So she's just not the person I bring fresh hard stuff to and expect her to show up for me. It's just, it's not, it's just not what she can handle. So I have other people for that. So that's an example of like sharing the right story with the wrong person. Uh, yeah, not everybody's going to be your person. Yeah. I mean, and I also think there's something valid in what you said about sometimes you also have to teach people what you need. Um, I think there's like, uh, we expect people to be mind readers and especially if it's something that they haven't dealt with before, you know, like the grief is a really good example. If someone has never experienced that and has no point of being able to relate to it and loves you and wants to help, but like doesn't know what to say, obviously it's hard to be going through something and then also sort of have to (laughs) tell people how to help you. But sometimes that's just the reality of situations. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I've actually learned this really well with my husband and just, I preface conversations now. So if something is really big and I, you know, cause stereotypically, I hate to stereotype, but I'm going to like men like to fix things. It's sort of in their nature. And my husband is no exception. And I've, I've now told him, like, I'll preface a conversation and say, like, I'm about to share something with you and I don't need you to try to fix it. I don't need strategy or advice. I just need you to listen and give me a hug at the end. He loves that I like spell out <laughs> what to do. Cause then he can show up for me 
really well. And sometimes I forget to preface the conversation and he'll start in and I'm like, oh shit, no, 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 <laughs> wait. But before I used to just get really angry that he didn't know what to do and like, you know, throw a tantrum and, and make him wrong. And that's not fair. Yeah. You know, we're not taught how to be empathetic and how to show up for our people. So um, I always, I ask people too, like, how do you, you know, when you really don't know what to say, you could just say, I have no idea what to say to you right now. It sounds like what you're going through is really hard. I'm just really glad that you told me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, all of that is so relatable. I've had literally the exact same conversation with my own husband and also with friends too of like, I will, you know, hey, can you help me brainstorm something? Or hey, I need to vent about something. Or there's something that's, I think that it's it's healing on two levels because it makes the conversation itself better and, you know, like more productive, I guess. But also it's helpful for me because that means that I've taken the first step on my own of even identifying what my needs are in the moment. Like, do I just need to be heard? Like, do I need to know that I've been heard? Okay, yeah. awesome. Then I can ask for that. Do I actually need a solution? Like, is this a strategy thing? Okay. It's like, I've found that not only is it more helpful as far as the other person is concerned for all the reasons that you said, then why your husband responds well to that. But I find that it's helpful for me because it means that I've at least done some work on my own of, okay, what do I actually need from this? You know, not just like, you know, emotional, like verbal word vomit, which is okay sometimes too. (laughs) Right, Um, exactly. But that it's helpful for me to be like, oh no, I just need, I just need to vent, right? And then I need you to cut me off after like 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, that's perfectly, that's perfectly acceptable. I think that like conscious complaining or venting, yes, there's, there's room for it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, so I think that's a good place to start to wrap up and um, how we end these episodes are with some sort of rapid fiery questions chosen by the community that basically all eight guests from this season will answer the same seven questions if you're down okay. to answer some random questions. Okay. I love these. I love it. Um, so if you had a completely free afternoon next week, just for you to be totally selfish, how would you most love to spend it? Oh my gosh. Um, all by myself. Yeah. <laughs> Just for you. It's the Andrea show. The whole afternoon, I would probably either go to the library and just like take my time finding too many books that I, I don't have enough time to read by the, you know, the three week limit that they're at. Um, or I would like organize my closet or do something. It's just, it, it, it feeds the control freak in me and is productive. (laughs) Both of those sound lovely. I would like to do those as well. Um, what feels most important to you this year? I think definitely just leadership in general and learning what that looks like for me and working on my own upper limit stuff. Like we were talking about in the beginning of the call. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, what's one place in your town, and I guess you can remind people of the city that you live, uh, that you'd really recommend people check out if they ever travel there, a favorite, I don't know, restaurant, coffee shop, bookstore, park, anything. Oh my gosh. So I live in a very small town right outside of Greensboro, North Carolina, population 6,000. It's called Stokesdale. Like there's literally like traffic jams caused by tractors. Um, and so I'll, I'll say Greensboro the Mellow Mushroom is such a yummy restaurant. I highly recommend it. Okay. See, if I'm ever there, this is when someone in the community put this question up, I was like, that's great. Because then you just get recommendations for places that you'll never know if you need. And then you go there and you're like, oh, wait, didn't I hear about this one place? Yes. Yes. Yummy restaurants are always, always good to know about. What's working really well in your life right now? Something that feels like it's easy and vibrant and flowing. Um, This is probably not a question, not an answer that I thought that I would, you know, say a a little while ago. So I have not 
worked out since my dad died. I kind of went off the rails and I put on probably at least 10 pounds and I had to buy um, new pants and new underwear. It was kind of a funny quick story. So I thought something was wrong with my underwear because they were like writing down my butt. And I'm like, what is wrong with my underwear? Like all mad at my panties and couldn't figure out like why I kept having to pull them up. And it was because my ass was getting bigger, but the fabric was the same. So I, that was kind of, I thought it was funny. So I finally like realized, I'm like, oh, it's not my underwear's fault. It's actually my ass is getting bigger. So I had to go buy new underwear. They fit very well now. But I think that what has been working really well for me on that regard is that I'm really okay with it. Like, and it surprises me. Like I'm the heaviest I've ever been. And I know I have accepted, like, this is not forever. This is just a season. And I stepped out of the mirror, out of the shower. It's been like maybe two or three weeks. And I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. And I, my immediate thought was, oh my God, that is my mother's body. And I have the same shape as my mom. And I remember seeing that exact body that I was looking at in the mirror when I was a little girl and like seeing her naked. And it, it meant like, it was just not a big deal. She was neither skinny nor fat. She was just a mom, my mom. And she was beautiful and she was everything. And I just like, in that moment was like, oh my God, like it just is. It's just a body and it just is. And that was so moving for me. And, you know, my daughter's eight. And so it just was sort of one of those like pivotal kind of body image moments where I just was like, oh, okay, this is what it means to like get to a certain age and kind of like start to not care as much (laughs) about that. And yeah, that's, Mm. that's what's working. Totally. What's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, it would have led you down an entirely different path in life? Something that you think of as like, ooh, that was a fork in the road. And if I would have turned left instead of right, everything would have been different. I have so many of those. I know, me too. (laughs) One that I'll pick out of the air is that when I was married to my first husband and I I had turned 30 and that's really when um, we kind of started to go downhill and he met the woman across the street and started having an affair with her. And I, during that time, I sort of like suspected something was going on. I did not suspect an affair, but he was just starting to act different. And I, I was ready to have a baby with him. You know, we had been together forever at that point. I was 30. It was, it was time in my, in my book. And I was on birth control pills. And I remember thinking to myself, like, well, I could just stop. We were still having sex. Like I could have just stopped taking the pill and I would have gotten pregnant. And something inside of me told me not to do that. And that's, Kind of like for for who I was at that time, that was kind of unlike me. And I just knew that I didn't want to have a baby with him where we were at. And if I would have, if I would have, things would have been very different because I do think that he would, I think things would have transpired as they did, but I would have been connected to him forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the next question is about books. Um, Which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre at all, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Biggest impact probably was uh, Richard Carlson's, the late Richard Carlson's Don't Sweat the Small Stuff because I read it when I was in my 20s and it was really, I think, my first self-help book that I ever read. And I resonated just so much with it. But again, like I wasn't ready to actually change my life. (laughs) But I was like, I really like this. So, you know, he's so, he's so right on. And so that one definitely, I have a copy of it, but I haven't read it in, in forever. And I think that 
also what had a really big impact on me was Courtney Martin wrote the book, Perfect Girls, Starving Daughters. I read that probably a decade ago, maybe eight years ago. And it's all about perfectionism and, and a little bit about, you know, some about eating disorders and just our culture and really our generation of, of women. And I just real quick, what she says, which I think is so brilliant. I, I, I quote her in the book and, and she says that there was, it was this sort of unintended backlash of the feminist movement of where we grew up hearing that we could do anything we want. We could be anything that we want in our life, but we took that on as we have to be and do everything. And, um, I think it's just the birth of perfectionism. So that Mm -hmm. book really opened my eyes a lot. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Oh, small action. Does it have to be small? No. <laughs> yeah, it could be anything. <laughs> I think, okay, like pull out your favorite self-help book. And I'm sure that people listening like have self-help books where they've highlighted stuff or dog-eared and, and go in back and look at it and, and, and ask yourself, you know, like, have I actually taken any action in this self-help book that clearly I liked and resonated with? I would start there. I love that. Yeah. What would, what would change if you actually took the action and, you know, did that instead of just highlighting it and then feeling bad? Yes. (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, what's the best place for people to find you find the book, say hi online. Do you have a favorite way to connect with new people? Yeah. I love connecting with people on Instagram. I'm at the your kick-ass life handle, not that it's, it's just your kick-ass life. And my website, same, yourkickasslife.com. And books are at bookstores and on Amazon online everywhere. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Andrea, thank you so much for your stories and honesty and just all around awesomeness. Oh, thank you, honey. I could have talked to you for nine hours. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now and has been for a while a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Jen. Hi, Jen. Hello. You ready to answer some rapid-fire questions? I am super excited. Not that your answers have to be rapid. I don't even know why (laughs) that term exists, but you can take as long as you want. Um, My favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh my gosh. I am obsessed with the Korean, is it 10-step beauty care system? (laughs) I have absolutely no idea. This is news to me. (laughs) Well, so I'm, I'm actually turning 48 soon and I've always had this, you know, really lovely skin and I just feel like age is finally catching up with me. And so I'm actually washing my face at night, which I've never really done before. So that's what I'm obsessed with. I love that. Washing your face at night. The the adulting step for 2018. This is amazing. Um, Speaking of 2018, what's one thing that you feel like you're seriously kicking ass at so far this year? Oh my gosh. Well, I've been to yoga twice this week. Um, So considering I haven't had a solid practice for about five years, I think I'm kicking ass with my yoga. I love it. Yes. Turning the boat around. Exactly. Um, What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Mm -hmm. I love caribou's chicken apple sausage sandwiches with a large cold press with a little bit of heavy cream. 
I like how specific your answer was. It's funny. It's, this is like, it, no, it's perfect. This is, can be like such kind of a throwaway question, but I find I'm like, it's like really like voyeuristically curious. If I hear yeah. specifically what people are having for breakfast and I can like imagine their morning. And it's so funny, like how different the things are that people eat in the morning. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Um, who do you need to write a thank you note to this week? If there's one person that you could give like a gratitude shout out to, who would it be? Oh my gosh. Every guest that I had on 2017 for my show. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your show. Well, it's called Going There and it's really, I mean, similar concept. I don't want to feel alone in my awkwardness, in the traumas that I had as a child, et cetera. Um, I'm always one who, who is, you know, does the awkward raise my hand, I'll go first. And I thought, why not host conversations again, kind of voyeuristic and help others feel less alone, including myself. So it's real stories. Imperfect people. Feeling less alone. That's the magic. I'm here for that. So the last question, what's one specific thing that you really wish that people were more open and honest about? (laughs) How, how how far can I push the boundary on this one? I mean, there's no, you listen to my show, there's no boundary, say whatever you want to say. <laughs> I mean, so last night I actually went to naked yoga for the first time ever. And oh God, I'm I'm not I have so many questions. I have so many I know, questions. Right? <laughs> I'm not a nudist. I don't consider myself a naturalist. I've always been fine with walking around naked. It's not something I do in front of my kids, blah, blah, blah. But I just, I was there. I was the only woman out of about eight guys or eight people there. And it just helped me. It was kind of that feeling of if we could all just show up kind of naked, like we could strip all pretenses away and just get to get to the rawness and the realness and what's going on behind the scenes, literally and figuratively. Oh my God. Well, I will. Yeah, I, I will. So no, that's a such a good naked. answer. I'm going to table my 100,000 follow-up questions. Maybe we'll yes. have a separate conversation about this because <laughs> that's, you know, I'm finding again, like, yes, I'm interested in what people have for breakfast, but I'm also really interested in when people have experiences that, you know, I would say that going to naked yoga is outside of like the mainstream, right. Of what people do. And yet like people do it. And I love to hear people talk about like sort of offbeat things and like why they choose them. And, you know, cause I think it's so important to I don't know, just talk about things that aren't just like the same five things that everyone talks about. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, Okay. Well, that will be tabled for another time. Uh, Part two, TBD. Um, So you're a member of our Patreon community, Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season and pay for me to do this work. And I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show and then maybe one small thing that you've really enjoyed in our like behind the scenes community. Yeah, I think from a supporting the show perspective, it's seeing the dedication that you put into it and and wanting to have a little piece of that, if you will. And the I think you call them the grit and grace notes that the Patreon um, subscribers only get. I've always enjoyed those. And so it was just a, a simple way to continue, um, you know, seeing what you're up to and, and the super interesting conversations that you have. One of my favorite things would be the book club. Um, it it's it's recommending books that I necessarily haven't heard others talking about. And I've just, you know, I, all the, the selections are just, they're great. I've, I've loved all of them. And I love the conversation that happens around them. It's not just, oh, this was great. This was, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like it's meaningful, in-depth conversations that people are having. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I the, I was really excited last year when we launched the book club. And even this year, I had like a mini panic the other day when I was trying yeah. to like pick books for the next couple months. I was like, what do I choose? What do I choose? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting. 
Patreon as a platform, as far as like for conversations and community goes, like it doesn't quite have sort of the functionality of like a Facebook group, right? For example, yeah. I mean, I really dislike Facebook and quit it yeah. a couple years yeah, ago, yeah. so that wasn't a choice for me. But you know, there's it's almost like sort of the limitations are that it's you can't like really tag people and have you can have threaded conversations, but it's just not as robust. And I actually really like that because it's like it's not overwhelming. Like the community fosters really good conversations and yet it doesn't feel like I'm getting like ten thousand notifications. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. That's so great. Um and to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be super fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe you could even come on and do an outro with me like this. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 